Hear the word of God from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and chapter 3, verses 3 through 18. These readings come from the Common English Bible. You can find this reading on page 982 in the Pew Bible. What is the source of conflict among you? What is the source of your disputes? Don't they come from your cravings that are at war in your own lives? You long for something you don't have, so you commit murder. You are jealous for something you can't get, so you struggle and fight. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you don't have because you ask with evil intentions to waste it on your own cravings. Are any of you wise and understanding? Show that your actions are good with a humble lifestyle that comes from wisdom. However, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, then stop bragging and living in ways that deny the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Instead, it is from earth, natural and demonic. Wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in everything that is evil. What of the wisdom from above? First, it is pure, and then peaceful, gentle, obedient, filled with mercy and good actions, fair and genuine. Those who make peace sow the seeds of justice by their peaceful acts. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. Sally mentioned in her prayer, Typhoon Mongkut which uh, many of us have heard is the strongest storm of 2018, uh, just recently hit the Philippine Islands, and uh, many of you have asked about my family members, uh, relatives who live in the country to see how they're doing. Uh, because the typhoon hit the northernmost island on its way to China, uh, I'm relieved to say that my family members uh, who live mostly in the central part of the country, in Manila and Manila Bay, are doing fine. And so thank you for those prayers. As we continue to pray for all those affected, especially, of course, those who are living in the Carolinas and even at this very hour are still dealing uh, with the effects of uh, Hurricane, former Hurricane Florence, but still a very dangerous storm uh, at this very minute. We, of course, will let you know of the official response from our denomination and keep you apprised of ways that we can uh, respond to those who are affected. But for now, the chief question of the morning is what is the good life? What constitutes the good life? And I suspect that is a topic of interest to just about all of us this morning. I can't imagine that there's anybody here in the sanctuary or watching from a distance who isn't interested in what it would mean to live the good life. And my sense is that by the end of this sermon, we will hear lots of different options of what could constitute the good life, some of them good definitions, some of them not so good. But ultimately, we want to hear God's definition. What does God consider to be the good life, and how can you and I live it? That's the central question for this chapter from James that Nikki just read for us. And it begins with what I think is a pivotal verse to unpack this definition for us. We shared it with you in your insert this morning. It's right there from James chapter 3, verse 13, 
Show that your actions are good with a humble lifestyle that comes from wisdom. There, in a nutshell, is what James considers to be the good life. Humble lifestyle that is based on wisdom. The good life is based on wisdom. Which, of course, prompts the follow-up question, what does wisdom mean? There's lots of definitions of that. It's possible that when you think of a wise person, the first kind of person you think of is someone that knows a lot of stuff about a lot of things. Someone who would be a Jeopardy champion, someone who would be able to answer every question of every category. Is that what it means to be wise? Someone who is proficient in an area of expertise, someone whose mind is filled with trivial knowledge? Chances are pretty good that you and I would agree that that's not what wisdom entirely means. So we'd like to add a second supplement to that idea, and that is experience. We like to say there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom, and that difference is experience. Someone who's been around for a while. Someone who is maybe more seasoned with age. When you think of a wise person, sometimes you think of someone who is older than you. Someone who has had more life experiences. I think of the conversation between a reporter and a successful business owner. The reporter says to the man, Sir, what is the secret to your success? And the man said, Two words. Right decisions. The reporter said, Ooh, that's good. Wrote it down. And then the reporter thought, Well, well, sir, tell me, where, where do you, where's the source of your right decisions? And the man said, One word. Experience. Oh, that's good. The reporter wrote it down. Uh, finally, sir, one more follow-up. Where do you get experience? The man finally answered two words. Wrong decisions. <laughs> it's interesting, when you ask the Bible what wisdom means, the Bible is very clear. All throughout the Bible, there is a continuing thread that wisdom is not based on one's intellectual capacity, not based on one's knowledge that's crammed into one's head. It's not even based on experience or how old you are. Wisdom, according to the Bible, is an entire life, one's entire life oriented toward the way and will of God. It's not just what you know, and it's not just what you do, and not just what you say, it's all of it. Oriented around God's heart and God's mind. Take a look at the book of Psalms and Proverbs. Over and over again, there's a phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Which means that wisdom comes from following God with an awestruck kind of feeling toward God in a worshipful kind of orientation toward God. That's a wise life. You ask Jesus what the wise life means and he'll tell you a story. There once was a homeowner who built his house on a rock. That was a wise person. And then there was a foolish person who built his house on sand. That was not wise. And Jesus is very clear. That rock that we are to build our house on is nothing short of our faith and trust in God and our willingness to do exactly what God says. That kind of life, according to Jesus, 
is the wise life. So it should be no surprise that by the time we get to James, he devotes a huge section of his letter on what the good life means based on wisdom. Now it's interesting that we could also ask the question, what is the opposite of a good life? What is the opposite of a wise life? Now, in the Bible, the opposite of wisdom is not ignorance. It is not a lack of knowledge. Biblically speaking, the word that comes up most often to describe the antithesis to the wise life is foolishness. That's the word. The foolish life. And that word for foolish in the Bible means arrogance. It means deviating from God's way. It means living in a life, living a life that is contrary to the way and will of God. So if you want to live a good life, you have to be wise. And if you want to be wise, it's not just about knowing lots of things. It's not just about your Bible knowledge. It is not just about being able to speak at length about spiritual things. It is not about how long you have been a Christian. To be a wise person and to live a good life is to have your life consistent with what you believe. In a nutshell, wisdom in the Bible means a life that is consistent with our convictions about God. And that is a tall order. Because you know, as well as I do, that we are not perfect. That not a single person in this room has been able to reach that high bar of expectation. We have our weaknesses and our shortcomings. And as much as we try and want to live that good life, it is hard every single day. Well, fortunately for us, James doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us some very practical advice on how to live a life that is oriented toward trust in God. And the very important thing that he says to us is in chapter 4, verse 1. Pay attention to your cravings. If the good life is based on wisdom, the foolish life is based on cravings. And I find that word fascinating. That word cravings does not appear very often in the New Testament, and so I did a little digging around in what that word means. And to share that definition with you, I want to tell you a little story. A story that unpacks what cravings mean. This story comes from a long time ago. 500 years before the book of James was written, there was a Greek philosopher named Aristippus. You've probably never heard of Aristippus, but I bet you heard of Aristippus's teacher, another Greek philosopher named Socrates. Aristippus was one of his pupils, and Aristippus one day tried to think of his own definition of what the good life means. And he came to this conclusion that for him, the good life is defined by avoiding pain and instead seeking pleasure. That's what he believed the good life meant. 
doing everything you could to avoid all the pain, heartache, and misery in life, and instead filling your life with pleasurable things. Now, Aristippus himself was not prone to excessiveness. He believed in moderation. And so he was not prone to wild partying and debauchery and letting himself go. He believed that to avoid pain, you simply fill your life with pleasurable things, simple pleasures, like the companionship of others, enjoying nature, living simply, that kind of thing. That if we could just free ourselves from all of that pain and fill ourselves with simple pleasures, for Aristippus, that would be the good life. Now you can imagine that as he was sharing his teachings with other people, he began to amass a pretty big following of students, including another well-known Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And he took that philosophy one step further. But what's interesting is, over the next several hundred years, with every generation that came by, more and more people would take that philosophy to one more extreme. Aristippus gave a word for his philosophy. He called it hedone. Hedone. And that word simply meant seeking pleasures and avoiding pain in moderation. But with every generation after Aristippus' death, they would take that hedone life and move it further away from moderation and more and more to the extreme. So that some 500 years later, that word hedone would become associated with a voracious appetite for anything pleasurable a lust for anything and anyone that would fill one's life with anything that would make someone feel good. And you can imagine what kinds of things and what kinds of experiences constituted that word hedone centuries after Aristippus coined the word. And what's fascinating is that by the time we get to the first century, to the Christian church and to James' little letter to the church in chapter 4, verse 1. What is the word that James uses to describe the foolish life? Hedone. Cravings. The same word, by the way, that is the root word for our modern day term, hedonism. For James... A life that is wayward, a life that is not wise and not good, is a life that is marked by an avarice and a compulsory desire to fill one's life with anything and anyone that simply makes one feel good. And I suspect that if you and I do some deep introspection into our lives, we have at least a little bit of hedone inside each and every one of us. In fact, James wants to make it very clear to you and to me as to how much hedone we have by giving us a very simple and clear four-part self-diagnostic tool right here in James 4.13. Four signs of a pleasure-centered life that I've sort of stylized a little bit to all begin with the letter B, but they're all right there in the 13th verse. Number one, bitter jealousy. 
bitter jealousy, which means you love more of what you don't have instead of loving what you do have. You love more of what you don't have and less of what you do have. Number two, blind ambition. You love more of what you haven't yet accomplished and less of what you have accomplished. Three, boasting. You love telling other people about yourself and less about what other people are. Number four, being untruthful. You love more your version of the truth and less of what others might think and feel. There you are, four B's, which for James constitutes the foolish life. And, you, and if, you, if you look carefully, there's a connecting thread that ties all four of these together. And simply put, this kind of life, a life that goes four for four, is a life in which love is turned entirely inward upon oneself instead of a love that is poured outward for other people. That is the foolish life. A life that is entirely about yourself and not at all about other people. These are chilling words. And if you look at yourself in the mirror, as I've had to in wrestling with this text, you come to the conclusion that there's at least a little bit of each one of those four inside each one of us. There's a little bit of hedone inside us. And so James has set us up now. He's done with the diagnosing. And we are fully ready for the prescription. We're ready for James to tell us what the key to the good life is. And it's simply this. It's less about the love you get and entirely about the love you give. The secret to the good life is found in two verses in chapter 3. Two verses that are so important, we wanted to put it in your insert today. Chapter 3, 17 to 18. The formula for the good life in this book is in these words. What of the wisdom from above? First, it is pure and then peaceful, gentle, obedient, filled with mercy and good actions, fair and genuine, those who make peace sow the seeds of justice by their peaceful acts. See the common thread there? The common thread in those two verses is not that love is turned inward upon yourself. It is a love that is poured out for the benefit and the impact of other people. The secret to a good life, according to James, is not to give in to your cravings, to accumulate more and more for yourself. It is a wise life based on love that is poured out for other people. And if you look carefully at each of those words, there is a secret to each one of them. Each of these words in 3, 17, and 18 could itself be its own sermon. And in fact, you might want to take a pen or a pencil as I read through these words again and just circle these individual words as I go through them. Here's the secret to a good life. Number one, the word pure. Purity. A life centered on God's best for me. 
rather than things that harm me or are self-destructive. Two, the word gentle. Gentleness. A life that controls my angry flare-ups and my temptations toward bursting out and instead projects calm amid adversity. Gentle. Third, obedient. Obedience. It's a life in which I offer to God my will instead of expecting God to follow mine. Number four, mercy. Mercy. A life that is oriented towards helping the needs of other people rather than expecting others to meet mine. Next, fair. Fairness. A life that does not play favorites. A life that tempers your prejudice, keeps your judgmentalism in check in order to treat everyone the same. And the last one, a two-parter, peace and justice. Those two words go hand in hand throughout the Bible, peace with justice. It's a life that enters into conflict rather than avoids it. It works to bring resolution and restoration for people who are at war. There you go. Instead of that four-part diagnosis of the foolish life, James would want you to, to look at these words and to use this as a diagnostic tool to check how well you do in these words. So I invite you to read this verse over and over again. Perhaps the first thing you read when you get up in the morning and ask yourself the question, how will I live into these ideals this week? And you will soon discover that the good life is not about how many trophies you get, not how many achievements you make. It's not about what status society would assign to you. Instead, this kind of life is one that is oriented toward love. Ask yourself a question. Do you, do you know anybody? Is there anybody in your life who fits all of these words? who characterizes the best of this kind of life? Well, chances are that if you know someone like this, they have deeply impacted your life. I can think of a handful of people in my, in my life, some of them still alive, who impact my life in all of these ways. And that's the way it works. That when you live this kind of life, you cannot help but shape and influence people around you. And that's the ideal. The good life is one in which your life is shared and poured out for other people. Just like George Mueller. You've probably never heard the name George Mueller before. I invite you sometime to, to, to Google him and, and look his name up and you'll be amazed by his story. I want to share his story with you. He was born in 1805 in Germany. And by every account, George Mueller lived the foolish life. If he had taken a look at that list of four B's, he would have gone four for four in the way he was living in his early years. In fact, in his autobiography, he wrote, he wrote these words. I lived a life of wicked behavior and unrepentant spirit. I was as careless as ever, he said. I had no Bible, 
I had not read any scripture for years. I seldom went to church. And only out of custom, I took the Lord's Supper twice a year. I never heard the gospel preached, he said. That's the life of George Mueller. But then, God got a hold of him. One day in 1825, at a prayer meeting in someone's house, he was convicted of his ways, and he began to see a wisdom from above, a way of life that was guided by God's grace, a love that was not turned inward upon himself, but that could be poured outward for other people, and his life was changed forever. He wrote, quote, Despite my sinful lifestyle and cold heart, God had mercy on me. And from that moment on, he made a profound impact on the lives of others. He left Germany. He moved to England, to the town of Bristol. And immediately he began to pour out his life in service and compassion to others. He not only learned to live the good life, he helped other people live a good life as well. He developed a passion for helping the poor, especially the poor children in the community. It was said that by the time he died, he, quote, raised the poor above their natural station in British life. But his biggest impact was in the lives of poor children, he provided care for over 10,000 orphans in England. He was responsible for building 117 schools in England to teach kids about God's love and to help them live a good life. And by the time he died, he had shared God's love and improved the lives of over 120,000 children. A remarkable story. By every measure, and especially by every biblical measure, George Mueller lived the good life. But I share you his name not just to tell you his amazing story this morning. I share it with you because this past week I came across a prayer that he wrote. A prayer that I think most fully and best captures everything that James is trying to tell us today. In fact, we'll ask the tech team to put his prayer up on the screen. You might choose to copy this prayer on the back of your insert. We'll leave it up for the next several minutes, even after I'm preaching. And I'd like for you to see these words. I'm going to read them straight through. And then after I say my prayer, we'll read them together. But look at how fully these words capture exactly what James is trying to tell us today. As George Mueller writes, Lord, don't let me become bitter. Lord, deliver me from arrogance. Lord, don't let me become cranky. Lord, teach me how to love others. Lord, free me from a critical spirit. Lord, I want a merciful heart. Lord, Use me to win others to you. Let's pray together. God, we want the good life. All of us here this morning don't want to live a foolish life. We, we know what that's like. 
And we know what that has led to. And we want to believe that the life we are living is not the best life we can live. So we confess to you, God, our shortcomings. We acknowledge to you that we have tried every other way to live a good life, and it has failed. And so we thank you for your grace and for your love that gives us challenging words like this from the book of James. It calls us to love others rather than to accumulate more and more. To seek a life of wisdom based on your mind and your heart rather than our own merits and our own means. We thank you for the example of others in our lives who have lived the good life, who have shaped us and given us the example of shaping others. And we thank you for the words of this prayer by George Mueller as it captures the longing for our hearts and your best intentions for us. And so hear us now as we pray these words aloud. Lord, don't let me become bitter. Lord, deliver me from arrogance. Lord, don't let me become cranky. Lord, teach me how to love others. Lord, free me from a critical spirit. Lord, I want a merciful heart. Lord, use me to win others to you. Amen. And so as we call for the offering this morning, we not only invite you to prepare your tithes and financial contributions, but to prepare the fullness of your heart. The last blank in your insert today is for you and you alone to fill out. How will I live a good life this week the way God intends it? As the choir offers this offertory anthem and as the plates pass by, I invite you to prayerfully consider how you'll fill that line in. Then take the insert home and daily ask for God's strength as you fulfill this best intention for your life. We give you thanks for all of your generosity to the ministries of this church and for God's grace at work in and through us. So at this time, we invite the ushers to come forward. <laughs> 